We're in a series here where we're looking at the last seven words that Jesus said while he was dying on the cross, which obviously were, were, were some pretty weighty words. Um, imagine being beaten to a pulp. Imagine having nails in your hands and in your ankles. Imagine a crown of thorns just jammed onto your head. Every breath you take is just agonizing. So here Jesus is, and he makes these last seven statements, these last seven words, and so obviously they're, they're, they're pretty weighty words. Last week, we looked at the fifth word, which was the word substitution. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was at that moment that all the sins of all of the people throughout all time were laid upon him. And at that moment, the father had to look away from his son because the father can't even look upon sin. Today, we're going to look at the sixth word, which is the word victory. Jesus said this in John chapter 19. He said, it is finished. It is finished. Then he bowed his head and released his spirit. In other words, he died. So here you have Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he said, it is finished. And then he died. Now when Jesus died, the Roman soldiers thought, he's finished. He's dead and gone. He, we won't have to worry about Jesus causing problems anymore for the Roman Empire. He's He's finished, but they were wrong because Jesus wasn't finished. When Jesus died, the religious leaders thought, he's finished, he's dead and gone. We don't have to worry about him stealing the people in our congregations anymore. He's finished, but they were wrong because Jesus wasn't finished. When Jesus died, the disciples thought, he's finished. He's dead and gone. We don't have anybody who will lead us anymore. The, the dream of the kingdom is, is finished. But they were wrong because Jesus wasn't finished. When Jesus died, the demons and Satan thought, he's finished, he's dead and gone. We're now in control of everything. The Son of God is finished. <clears throat> but they were wrong because Jesus wasn't finished. Beloved, when Jesus shouted, it is finished, this wasn't a, a cry of despair. This was a, a cry of victory. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he wasn't saying, I am finished, because Jesus wasn't finished. Three days later, he walks out of the tomb, came back to life. That's what Easter's all about. Jesus said, it is finished. It. What's the it? What was finished? Well, obviously, Jesus' pain and suffering was finished. Obviously, his humiliation was finished. Obviously, his grief was finished. But that's not what Jesus was talking about here. Beloved, when Jesus said, it is finished, he wasn't talking about his pain or his suffering. He wasn't talking about his humiliation. He wasn't talking about his grief. He was talking about something way more important than those things. And that's what we're gonna look at today. These are three of the most important words ever spoken. 
The Bible says this in John chapter 4. In the meantime, the disciples were begging Jesus, Teacher, have something to eat. But Jesus answered, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples started asking among themselves, could somebody have brought him food? Did, did someone slip him a sandwich? My food, Jesus said to them, is to obey the will of the one who sent me and to finish the work he gave me to do. Beloved, this was the one and only goal of Jesus. This was his mission in life. This was his purpose in life. He came to obey his Father. He came to finish the work that his Father sent him to do. And when Jesus said, it is finished, he wasn't saying, I am finished. He was saying, it was finished. The work that the Father sent him to do. That's what was finished. You see, all through the Gospels, you read this phrase that Jesus only said what the Father wanted him to say. Jesus only did what the Father wanted him to do. So when you get to this sixth word, it is finished. Jesus wasn't saying he was finished. Because he's alive and well today. He's working in our lives, isn't he, believer? He was saying it was finished. The work that the Father had sent him to do was finished. Now the phrase, it is finished, in the Greek is only one word. It's the word tetelestai, and it's a beautiful word that has a, a number of meanings. Let me give you a couple. To an artist, whenever they would complete a painting, whenever they would make the last you know, brush stroke, they would say, Tetelestai, it is finished. And in that context, what they were saying was, was that the picture's perfect. You can't add anything to this picture. It's perfect. You can't take anything away from this picture. It's perfect. Tetelestai. So when Jesus is dying on the cross, he's saying the, the picture's perfect. There isn't anything you can add to this picture to make it any better. You can't take anything away from this picture to make it any better. Now to a, a servant, the word tetelestai meant something way different. To a servant, at the end of the day, they would come to their masters and tell them that they had finished all their duties or all their chores or projects or whatever, and they would say, Master, tetelestai, it is finished. The work has been completed. I've accomplished everything that you gave me to do. So when Jesus is dying on the cross, he's saying, I've completed the work. I've, I've finished the job that the Father gave me to do. And that's the question that I want to deal with today is this. What exactly was that mission? What was the task that the Father sent Jesus to accomplish? And I'm only going to give you two things. There are many things that Jesus accomplished at that moment. He accomplished a lot of prophecy, a lot of prophecy was finished. A lot of scripture was finished at that moment. There's a lot of things that were finished. I'm only gonna give you, give you two. Number one, when Jesus said it is finished, he was saying that the payment for your sin was finished. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and all of your sin, my sin, was put onto him. 
At that moment, the father turns his head from the son. And then Jesus says, it is finished. At that moment, the payment for your sin was finished. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. He said, God has freed us from the power of darkness. And he brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. The son, Jesus, paid for our sins. And in him we have forgiveness. And I talked a lot about this last week. Jesus paid for all your sins. The, the debt that you owed because of your sin was paid in full by Jesus. To tell us die. It is finished. The work the Father sent Jesus to do has been completed. The picture is perfect. You can't add anything to it, and you can't take anything away from it. Imagine if I had a bunch of paint up here and a brush, and I decided that um, I was going to try to improve on the Mona Lisa. And so I took some paint and I said, hey, get out of the way. I, 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 I need to do something to this. That would just be crazy, wouldn't it? The Mona Lisa's perfect. To tell us that it's finished. You can't add anything to the Mona Lisa to make it any better than it is. You can't take away anything from the Mona Lisa to make it better than it is. Or imagine if I had a hammer and chisel and I said, you know what? Michelangelo's David, it's, it's okay but I think I'm gonna improve it a little bit. I'm gonna chisel away some of it here and chisel away some of it there. You'd all think, well, that's crazy. To tell us die, it's finished, it's complete. Countrymen, you can't add anything to Michelangelo's David. It's done. Well, it's just as crazy to think that you can add to what Jesus accomplished at the cross. It's absolutely crazy to think that you can add anything to what Jesus did at the cross. And yet what's amazing to me is that there are people out there, there are churches out there, there are pastors out there who will add stuff to it. It wasn't finished. They take out the brush and the paint or the hammer and the chisel and they say, you, you gotta be baptized. What Jesus did on the cross, it wasn't finished. It wasn't complete. It wasn't perfect. They had this. Some churches, some pastors will teach that, well, it really wasn't finished, and they take out the brush or the hammer and the chisel, and they had good works. You, 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 it wasn't really finished. It wasn't really complete. It was, the picture wasn't perfect. You now have to add to it. And that's just unbelievably blasphemous. When Jesus said, it is finished, when he said to Telestai, it was done. The picture was perfect. The task that the Father had sent him to do was done. And you can't add anything to it. Should you be baptized? Yes. Should you do good things? Yes. Should you be the one and serve in our children's ministries? Yes. Should you give an offering to God? Yes. Should you go on a mission trip for God? Yes. But none of those things add to what Jesus did on the cross. Not a one of them. There's just things that God wants you to do. 
And it's amazing, last week, and I know this week, I'll get a lot of emails from people, just really livid over this. When Pastor Scott got into that tank, the first thing he said was, this has nothing to do with your salvation. It is finished! To tell us die. The work is done. It's complete. This is just a step of obedience. It's an important step. But I don't want anybody to walk out of this place or anybody who's a family member in this church to think that baptism, and for those of you over in the venue, we baptized over here, has, has somehow, you know, added to what Jesus did on the cross. John the Baptist said it like this. It says, the next day John, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Beloved, God's Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God takes away your sin. He came to pay for your sins and he finished the task. He finished it. Aaron and I were having dinner at a restaurant downtown and... Um, you know, at some moment, I asked the waiter to bring me the bill because I owed the owner of the restaurant some money, right? I just ate this beautiful meal. And so I said, hey, Mr. Waiter, I need the bill. And he said, oh, somebody has already taken care of the bill for you. And I said, oh, that's really fantastic. I said, let me ask, did they also take care of your tip? Because sometimes, you know, they may just pay the bill, and I wanted to make sure he was tipped for his service. He said, yes, the bill was paid in full. Done deal. So at that moment, I'm free to get up and walk out the door. How crazy would it be to go, wow, that's really fantastic. But you know what? Here, here's my credit card. I, I, I just, I need to pay for something. Oh, no, it's been paid for in full. Oh, no, 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 no. Their money, I guess, you know, wasn't good enough. I need to give you some of mine now. I need to add to it. That's nutty, isn't it? The bill was paid for. Everything was paid for. All I have to do is get up and walk out the door and rejoice in the fact that somebody paid the bill. All you need to do, believers, is just get up when we're done and walk out the door and rejoice. But Jesus Christ paid the bill. He paid every bit of it. He paid the tip. He punched the ticket so you can you know, pick up your car in the Parking lot. It's all done. All you need to do is rejoice in it. You don't have to do anything. Nothing. The bill's been paid for. Listen. It, it, there's, just, there's just too many people out there that are trying to pay the bill. They're trying to please God. You don't have to Keep saying, maybe if I just work a little harder, God will like me. Maybe, I, maybe if I just pray a little more, you know, God will really like me. Maybe if I just go to church more, God will like me. Maybe if I serve in, in the children's ministries, maybe, maybe God will like me. Maybe if I go on a mission trip, God will like me. Beloved, listen to me. God likes you. He likes you a lot. He likes you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for your sins. The Bible says this in Romans chapter five, but God showed his great love for you. He showed you how much he likes you by sending Christ to die for you while you were yet a sinner. 
And since we all have been made right in God's sight, how? By the blood of Jesus Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. What else does God have to do to tell you he likes you? What else does God have to do to tell you how much he loves you? He loves you and the cross proves it. When Jesus is hanging there and he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he takes all of your sin and and the relationship between him and the Father was broken and he says it is finished. He's telling you he likes you. He loves you. There's nothing you need to do. Nothing. He's paid the bill. Now, now I want to make sure that you understand this, okay? This is one of the, the critical teachings in the scripture. It's one of the reasons why usually about once a month you hear me talk about what I'm going to talk about next. Because it's absolutely critical that you understand this critical teaching, okay? The Bible says this in Romans chapter 5. The Bible says that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Beloved, at the very moment Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they sinned against God, it brought evil into the world, which messed everything up. It stained everything. It stained you, it stained me. The prophet Isaiah, the great prophet said this in Isaiah chapter 53, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've we've left God's path to follow our own. When Adam and Eve decided to blow God off and go on their own path, it messed up everything. And the great prophet says, hey, we're all like Adam and Eve. We've all gone down our own path. We've all blown God off and decided that we weren't going to follow his ways. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, for the wages of our sin is death. Beloved, sin, disobeying God, brings with it a consequence, the, the, the death penalty We all die because we're all sinful. And not only do we die physically, but way more importantly, sin brought with it a death, a a spiritual death. The Bible says that our sins separated us from God. There was this spiritual death, but the story gets worse. Listen to what the great prophet Jeremiah said. He said, can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? And the answer is (laughs) no. Can a leopard Take away its spots. No. Well, neither can you start doing good, for you have always done what is evil. In other words, you couldn't repair the damage or the consequence that sin had brought any more than I could change the color of my skin or a leper could take away his spots. Once again, listen to what the great prophet Isaiah said. He said, all of us are dirty with sin All the right things we have done are nothing but filthy pieces of cloth in God's eyes. All of us are like dead leaves and our sins like the wind have carried us away. That's pretty descriptive, isn't it? Beloved, sin left us with a huge problem, huge problem. So our brother Job asked maybe the most important question that anybody could ever ask. Job asked this, how can a person be declared innocent 
in God's sight. In other words, Job is saying, God, because you're so great, because you're so wonderful, because you're so awesome, because you're so holy, because you're so righteous, how can I ever have a relationship with you? How can I get rid of the sin that has messed everything up between us? I mean, this is an important question. Can sinful man ever have a relationship with a holy God? That's what Job's asking here. And the answer is yes. Yes, it's possible because of this sixth word. It's possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. He finished the work that the Father sent him to do. I want you to think about the Christmas season. Think about some of the great verses that we read and hear about during the Christmas season. Luke chapter two says this, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He's Christ the Lord. This is the beginning of the mission. Christmas is when we celebrate God sending the Savior on an incredible mission for us. In Matthew chapter 1, it says, She, Mary, will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. You see, God knew the mission. I'm sending my son to die on a cross for your sins. And when you get to the sixth word, the word of victory, it is finished. He accomplishes the task. You see, Christmas is, um, is a time when God says, you matter to me. Christmas is a time when, when God screams at the top of his lungs, you matter. You matter so much that I'm going to send a Savior. I'm going to send the one who will carry out the mission, the, the, the purpose of saving you of your sins. Jesus said this in John chapter 3, For God did not send his Son, that's Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. If you were here last week, I told you Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation the reason why that baby was born in the town of, of Bethlehem, the town of David, wasn't to bring condemnation. The purpose of the Son of God coming, God's uh, mission for him, wasn't to bring condemnation. You were already condemned. Your sin had already condemned you. Jesus didn't need to do that. What Jesus needed to do was save you. That's why he came. That's why he was born. And when you get to that, you know, those three words, it is finished. He accomplished the task. To tell us die. The last brush stroke was made. Oh, that's perfect. He accomplished the task that the Father had sent him to do. So what's the takeaway? From this, what's the application of this first point? The application is never forget what it costs to forgive you. Never forget that. And I have you think about that often. Because I know something about us human beings. We have the tendency to forget things. I'm wondering how many of you woke up this morning 
and really thought about what it cost to repair the relationship between you and the Father. What it cost. Peter said this, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors, from Adam, Eve. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. The ransom he paid was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God paid a huge price for you, something worth way more than silver or gold. It cost God his only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus died for you. He paid for the penalty of your sins. The reason why I'm going to heaven isn't because I was baptized, isn't because I gave an offering, isn't because I've been on a zillion missions trips, isn't because I'm in the ministry. It's not because of, you know, all the good things I've ever done. It's not because I was born in America. I'm not going to heaven because I'm a part of Big Valley Grace. Those are all good things. I'm going to heaven simply because a ransom was paid for me. The blood of Jesus Christ, period. Period. Number two. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying that the power that Satan has over you is finished. In 1 John, we're given an incredible piece of information. The Bible says, he who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason the Father sent Jesus on this mission was to destroy the devil's works. And what was the work of the devil? Well, let me remind you again. You have to go back to the very first book of the Bible, the very first chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I tell you all the time that I think Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are the most important chapters in all of the Bible. In fact, if you're in my follow class or you've ever been in my follow class, I spend a lot of time talking about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Because if you don't understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you can't understand the, the message of this book. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are critical. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see what God wanted for all of us. They're, they're the most beautiful chapters in all of the Bible. God says in the beginning, God created. Those are the first five words of the Bible. And then we're told about all the things that God created. He created the sun and the moon and the stars. He created the water. He created birds and, and, and fishes and, and, and animals and, and fruit trees, all the vegetation. The Bible says that God created it all. And then in chapter 1 and verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man, woman, in, in our image, according to our likeness. You see, God created everything, but you are the only thing that God created in his image. Bears aren't created in the image of God. Seals aren't created in the image of God. Worms aren't created in the image of God. Bananas aren't created in the image of God. But you are. That's what makes human life so unique. It's what makes human life so special. It's what gives your life sanctity and dignity. Is you were made in the very image of God. And it was God's plan that he would take care of all the needs that Adam and Eve had, all the needs that Adam and Eve's children would have, and grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and so on and so forth. 
That Adam and Eve would look to God as their God. That, that, that God would take care of all their needs. That they would just believe him and trust in him. That's what God wanted. Genesis 1 and 2 are beautiful chapters. Unfortunately, you get to chapter 3. And it's in chapter 3 where everything goes haywire. In chapter 3, sin enters the world. Somehow, Satan was able to deceive Adam and Eve into disobeying God. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, it brought sin and evil into the world. And guess what? All these years later, sin has just been passed down to each one of us. The work of the devil was to trick or deceive Adam and Eve into disobeying God. The work of the devil was that he brought sin into the world, which then brought sin into your life. But the good news is, is that God sent his son Jesus to also do a work. And that work was to destroy the work of the devil. The work of Jesus was to bring forgiveness into the world, forgiveness for your sins. And when Jesus said it is finished, it was, the work was finished. Not only did he pay for all your sins, but he destroyed the work that the devil was doing. Second Corinthians chapter four says this, the devil who rules this world. Some of your Bible says the Satan, the God of this age. You see in Genesis chapter three, a whole lot of crummy things happened. Satan somehow became the, the ruler of this world. He became the God of this world. Small g in your Bible. Beloved, make no mistake about it, the devil is the ruler of this world, which is why Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 6. He tells us as Christians, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but we fight against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Our battle isn't a flesh and blood battle. That's not our battle. Our battle is against the demons. That's what our battle is. Listen guys, you, your, your battle isn't against your wife. She's not the enemy. You got one, but it ain't her. Ladies, you have an enemy. It's not your husband, but you've got one. Your enemy is not your parents. Your enemy is not your grandparents. Your enemy is not your kids. Your enemy is not, you know, your boss or your employees. You've got an enemy, and he's real. But it ain't any of them. We don't have a flesh and blood enemy. Our fight is a spiritual fight. And when Jesus said, it is finished, listen to me, a cosmic war was being played out between Satan and Jesus. And Satan thought he had won. He had thought he was going to be the outright ruler of planet Earth forever. I mean, here's Jesus on the cross. He's battered and bruised. He's beaten up. He's bleeding and dying. It looks like Satan had won. And for probably... Two days and 23 hours and 59 minutes, he was throwing a party. But once day three hit and Jesus walked out of the tomb, the disco ball stopped spinning. The band stopped playing. The party was over. But it looked bad, you know. It looked bad for us. Listen. It may have looked like Satan had won for a while, but the reality is he had lost, and he lost badly. 
Once again, listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter one. For God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. There is a kingdom of darkness and that kingdom of darkness has a ruler. And he transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, Jesus Christ. Now how were we rescued? We were rescued when Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. Paul goes on to say this in Colossians chapter two. He says, when you were spiritually dead because of your sins and because you were not free from the power of your sinful self, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all your sins. God stripped the spiritual rulers and powers of, uh, of their authority with the cross. He won the victory and showed the world that they were powerless. One version says this, God took away Satan's power to accuse you of sin and he openly displayed to the whole world Christ's triumph at the cross where your sins were taken away. Isn't that unbelievable? It's just crazy to me to hear preachers who want to add to this moment. I'll tell you, let me tell you where that's generated from. That's generated from Satan. I'm sure Satan loves it when people add brush strokes to the complete work of what Jesus did on the cross. It has to be satanic, it has to be. John said this in 1 John chapter four, he says, God is spirit who is in you is greater than the devil who's in the world. Beloved, Satan and the demons have some power. In fact, you should never underestimate the power of Satan and the demons. And I guarantee you there's, in I don't know, 1,500 people who might be here, there's probably one or two of you that when you woke up this morning, you were very cognitive of the fact that you have an enemy. The rest of you, you got up and you brushed your teeth and you combed your hair and you ate breakfast and you came to church and you haven't even thought one bit about the fact that you had an enemy who didn't sleep last night. He was up all night just trying to figure out how he was going to screw up your life, how he was going to screw up your marriage, how he was going to screw up your kids, how he was going to screw up your grandkids. You didn't give that one thought, did you? And that's just the way he wants it. Don't think about that. So you go about your day, you go about your life, you're just doing whatever it is you're doing, and you're not even thinking about the fact that you've got an enemy and he's real, real. And all last night, all he did was sit around and think about how he could screw up your life, put little landmines out there, little bear traps, if you will. Never underestimate the power of Satan and the demons, but for those of us that know Jesus, we have a far greater power in us than the demonic. We've got the power of God within us. So what's the, what's the takeaway? What's the application? The application is to never forget that God's power, that, that God's power that's in you is greater than the power that's in the world. But the only way you realize that is you gotta be cognitive of it. And how you tap into that power is you gotta keep your nose in the word of God. 
This is the thing that somehow, it's the food for our souls. It's this thing. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but he lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is what keeps us connected to the greatest power source known to mankind. It's this. Listen to what Peter said in, in chapter five of 1 Peter. He says, watch out, stay alert. You're a great enemy, the devil. He, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Here's Peter reminding you, you, you got an enemy. But then he says, stand firm against him. And God would never ask you to do something if he didn't give you the power to pull it off. And when Jesus said, it is finished to tell us die, at that moment, you had the power to stand firm against him at that moment. Beloved, two amazing things happened when Jesus died on the cross. Number one, the plan to save you from your sins was finished when Jesus died on the cross. And number two, the, the plan to release you from the grip of Satan was finished when Jesus died on the cross. That's why these three words, it is finished, are three of the most important words you'll ever hear in your life because if it isn't finished, we're in deep trouble. If it isn't finished, we're hopeless. If it isn't finished, we're doomed because we can't do it for ourselves. It's impossible. Jesus paid my penalty for everything I've ever done wrong. It is finished. Jesus rendered Satan and the demons and death powerless. It is finished. And I thought a lot about this this next little point here a lot this past week. I'd never thought about it in my 30 plus years of walking with the Lord. Here you got the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, perfect harmony, this Trinitarian love, um, perfect unity, have been together for, forever, for all eternity. And here's the son who was sent by the father who lived this amazing life for all of us, this perfect life, and now he's on the cross. And there comes this moment when all of the sin of mankind is dumped on him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus senses that the father turns his back on him. The first time ever He'd ever been separated from his father. And then Jesus says it is finished. Now here's what I thought about this past week. I wonder what it was like when Jesus and the father were reunited. Wow. I got goosebumps thinking about it. I, I want you to know something. You want to talk about a party? Could you imagine all of the angels are gathered around and, and they've watched Jesus for these 33 and a half years. They, they watched him go to that cross. The son of God is on that cross. He takes all of my sin, all of your sin. He's beaten to a bloody pulp. And then he says, it's finished. To tell us I, I accomplished the, the, the task. It's perfect. And now he's in the presence of his father. 
and all the angels. <laughs> I just can hear the Father saying, well done, son. Well done. I just never thought about what that moment would have been like. Jesus said this in John chapter 10. He said, the thief's purpose, the devil, the demon's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, my purpose is different. My purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. And Jesus made this rich and satisfying life possible when he uttered those three words, it is finished. When he uttered those words, he made that rich and satisfying life possible. So what's the bottom line? Well, in John chapter six, some people came to Jesus and asked him a great question. They asked him, what must we do, Jesus, to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent, period. Beloved, the bottom line is to believe that Jesus finished the work that God sent him to do. That's the bottom line. Jesus didn't say, here's the work. You gotta believe and be baptized. You gotta believe and take communion. You gotta believe and, and then go out and work your tailbone off to make sure I continue to like you because you know what, you blow it and I'm... <laughs> he didn't say anything. He didn't say that. He said, here's the work. The work is, is simply believe. Just believe. Believe. That's it. I'd like for you just to close your eyes for a second. This weekend, we've had a lot of people in the altar room for all kinds of things. And if you're in the venue, we have an altar room that's over to your right. And here we have an altar room that's to your right. And the spiritual leaders of our church, the pastors and elders are in there. I know the preaching's done, the mourning's done, the singing's done, the giving's done, the baptisms are done, but God ain't done, I know. He's not done. God's still working in some of your lives, I know it. The altar is a place where you can go and kind of flush out a little bit with some spiritual leaders, maybe what the Lord's doing in your life. And let me tell you something. There's a number of you that are Christians in here, and you need to do some repenting. It costs a lot to cleanse you of your sin. And you've been goofing around with it. This morning, for some of you, you need to say, God, I, I'm sorry. I confess my sin. I've been doing life my own way, and I, I'm turning back to you. I'm sorry for living life my own way, knowing full well what it costs to forgive me of my sin. For others, you've never given your life to Christ, never. And here this morning, God opened your eyes to the truth of what those three words were all about. It is finished, to tell us die. The work is done, the picture's perfect. 
And there's only one work left, and that's for you to simply believe it. And right now, you could, just right where you're seated, just simply say, God, I believe it. You finished the task. You paid for my sin. I invite you into my life. Cleanse me of my sin. Transfer me from the crummy kingdom of darkness into your kingdom, God. Let me tell you, if you prayed that or you've repented of some sin, maybe you just need to go into the altar room and just tell one of our elders, our pastors, hey, I prayed that prayer. And let us give you a Bible. Let us hip, hip, hooray, you know, what, what you've done. It's a big deal. God, God sent his son to pull, to pull it off. It's a big deal. And let us rejoice with you. Maybe you're here and you just want some prayer about your family, about your kids, about your parents. I don't know. The altar room is available for you, okay? Take advantage of it. Scott, would you come up and just close now our, our time in prayer?